I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about Radical Roots. So I founded this company when my son Remy was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder and intractable epilepsy. As a doctor of Chinese medicine, I knew that the best way to support his complex neurological and physiological needs would be through dynamic Chinese herbal formulas. I also started studying the incredible effects of hemp and its ability to support and regulate the brain and the body. By combining targeted Chinese herbal formulas with complete spectrum hemp and using a unique alchemical spagyric extraction technique, we have created formulas that are true game changers. Honestly, I truly believe that these are some of the most powerful herbal formulas on the market. Please check out RadicalRootsHerbs.com, use the code RADREMEDY, and get 15% off your first order. I'm so, so proud of these, and I think you guys are going to love them as much as I do. Hey guys, it's Dr. Chloe, and this is the Radical Remedy Podcast. I am so excited about today's conversation. It is with farmer Bob Quinn, who is truly a pioneer in regenerative farming and the cultivation of ancient grains. This episode is actually the first of a three-part mini-series in which we dive into glyphosate and some of the other environmental toxins that are found in our foods and how it's impacting not only the environment, but our bodies and our health. And then the last episode with Caroline Allen is actually going to explore something that Remy and I do daily in order to help us detoxify and maintain our cellular function so that we can stay healthy. So stay tuned, check this out. I know you're gonna love Farmer Bob Quinn as much as I do. He's really just such a lovely human and I'm so inspired by his work and I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. All right, hi everybody. I'm so excited to be here with you today and I've got the organic farmer Bob Quinn here with me and he is one of the original renegades of the organic farming game. Thank you so much for joining me, Bob. Boy, it's great to be with you. It's a really great honor. I want you to know. Oh, thank you so much. So I, I mean, your story is just so fascinating. You've built such a wonderful company and you've done so much incredible work. I would love to just start out with a little bit of your wonderful storytelling. Could you let us know a little bit how you got into organic farming from starting from the sort of traditional farming path that you were on? Well, Sure. Um, I was raised in a Wheaton Cattle Ranch, north, uh, just the southeast of Big Sandy, about 12 miles in Montana. Uh, Big Sandy is between Hammer Great Falls and northeast um, or north central part of the state. So we're just south of the Canadian border, about 60 miles, just straight south to the, where Alberta and Saskatchewan come together. And uh, it's um, prairie. Um, my grandfather started this place in 1920. My father was raised here, and then I was raised here, and my sister. And then I raised my kids here. So when I was growing up, I had two two loves. Uh, one was plants and the other was uh, science. And so when I went to Montana State University, I uh, combined those two and studied botany. And then I got a master's in plant pathology. And I was having so much fun, I decided to just keep going and went to UC Davis in California for a PhD in plant biochemistry. But to tell you the truth, I was a little bit disillusioned by the time I finished um, my work at Davis, the... Um, the research was all uh, a big competition game for grants, and and we weren't even allowed, or we were told not to speak to competing uh, laboratories doing similar work because they were going to be competing for the same grants. And I thought, wow, was that the way science is done? I thought, you know, I had the big um, naive uh, illusion of cooperation and pushing back the frontiers of knowledge and 
all this kind of stuff for the good of science. And, and it wasn't quite that way. So I bailed out of that and um, I was started a small business of, of my own with a friend in California. And then after a couple of years of that, I decided to move my family back to Montana. That's where I wanted to raise my kids and not on a busy street in, in Woodland. That's where we were near Sacramento. And so I came back to the farm in 78. And um, our farm was about 2,400 acres at that time, farm and ranch. And that was just the right size. It was about average size. Montana was about 25, 2,600 acres, average size farm in those days. And it was about the right size for one family, but not for two. And so I had started down the um, road that I had been introduced to, and that was the chemical road, because that's what everybody was doing. And everybody said it was great, way to feed the world, and uh, the only thing that made sense, and on and on and on. And um, so that's what we did. And um, But we couldn't make enough money to feed two families out of that. So I, I decided, I after trying several things that didn't work, which we don't have time to go into here, <laughs> But I found something that did work, and that was um, selling our grain directly to whole grain bakers in Southern California. They were willing to pay me a dollar a bushel uh, more uh, for my winter wheat, my high-protein winter wheat, for their um, sprouted bread that they were making in, in the L.A. Basin area. And, and, and in those days, we were getting about $3 a bushel for our grain, so this is a, an increase of a third. And it was pure profit. I just had to clean it and bag it, and they paid for that too, and ship it off to California. And I thought this was just the the answer we've been praying for. Um, so everything was going well. And then after about a year, so this is about 83 we started this. In 84, the owner called me up and he said, hey, Bob, he says, uh, he's on the phone. Hey, Bob, he says, uh, do you think you can find me some um, organic grain about the same kind of quality you've been sending me? And I said, oh, yeah, well, sure, Jim. Yeah, no problem. We'll, we'll have it down to you in a week or so. Oh, yeah, but go, I, okay, thank you. Click, and I hung up the phone and I thought, what did I just say? Because I didn't even know any organic farmers. And, and, and to tell the truth, I didn't even believe in this organic stuff because, you know, as I said, I've been taught all my life that a plant couldn't tell the difference between a molecule of nitrogen coming out of manure pile and one coming out of a bag of ammonium sulfate or something, you know, a chemical uh, source. And so, <clears throat> however, uh, so as not to let my prejudice stand in the way of, you know, uh, trying to satisfy my customers' needs, I went looking for organic farmers. And, and in 84, there weren't very many in Montana. There weren't very many anywhere. And I did find a few up in the, or one at least to start with, in the northeast corner of the state and called him up. And he said, oh, sure, I've got some extra wheat. And so I brought my truck up and filled it up. We took it back to um, Fort Benton where our cleaning plant was and cleaned it and bagged it and shipped, shipped to California. And a few weeks he called me up and he said, Bob, that's fantastic. Uh, I'll take another load. And then another, and then another. <laughs> I was really scouring the whole state looking for organic farmers. And, and um, there is about a, a, whole, a core of, hmm, I don't know, four or five or six maybe. Uh, uh, and then they invited me to one of their get-togethers, you know, one of their kind of their, <laughs> um, meetings where they kind of just get together and, and, and jaw and talk about ideas and, and, and things they're doing. And, you know, I've been used to going to Farm Bureau meetings and, grain grower meetings where the main discussion was what well, was me, you know, the prices down the toilet and the, the government programs aren't helping us what we need and on and on and on and on and on. And it was pretty, um, it wasn't too uplifting. <laughs> but I went to this organic meeting and they were a completely different attitude. They didn't talk about any of that stuff. They talked about how they could walk across their field and the, and the uh, tilth of the, of, the, of the soil under their feet felt different. It was more soft. 
and the ground wasn't so hard. They, they told me about how they could graze their own fertilizer. They told me how they could um, get away from the use of <clears throat> um, herbicides and pesticides by using crop rotations to break up disease cycles and insect cycles and, and um, uh, pest cycles. <clears throat> and I was very intrigued with that. So the, the scientists in me kind of bubbled up to the top and I went home and I said, Dad, we got to try this. We got to try this. Uh, so we had 50, um, about 20 acres of alfalfa that was right next to one of our normal fields, our chemical fields. And so we ripped that up and planted winter wheat and planted winter wheat right next to it. And then we did our soil test and I saw the amount of nitrogen in the alfalfa field, which is pretty high. Um, it was a, as much as we normally put on anyway. And so we put ammonium uh, sulfate, maybe urea, I don't remember. It's a, a chemical nitrogen on the, on the test field of the chemical field right next to it to bring up the same level of nitrogen. And at harvest time the next year, um, we had almost the same yield within a, within a bushel or so, about 35, 36 bushel. <clears throat> the protein was the other thing that we really worry about for uh, in this country for our wheat, where quality was both almost the same. One was 15.5 and the other was 14.3 or something like that. So there was no statistical difference between the two. And my father was astounded here. Um, he had been spending tens of thousands of dollars every year on chemical inputs. And this young whippersnapper son of his had come home from California and in one year had um, equaled what he had been doing at, at no input cost at all. Um, sure. Just using the, the alfalfa that we've been growing. And uh, I said, wow, my experiment had worked. I was so excited. I said, dad, look at this. Let's go 50% organic next year. And he said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, we don't even know what we're doing. And and that was true, of course. But that never slowed me down. I didn't. I don't worry about not knowing what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, keep going until I figure it out. And um, he said, "How about 10 percent?" And I said, "Hmm. How about 15?" He said, "Okay, we settled on 15." So we started converting 15 percent of the farm the next year, just cold turkey to organic. And the next year we had um, a drought. It was an 88. Now we're up to about 88 now. And then all this happened. And um, with a drought in Montana, we didn't already get grasshoppers. And that's what we've had the last three years has been terrible. But that was just a one-year plague. But they were they were coming in uh, ferociously. And they eat everything. They eat the bark off the off the uh, um, lilac trees, uh, bushes. They eat all the leaves off of everything. And they were coming out of the pasture. So I knew what to do with my chemical fields. I just called my buddy in town and said, Hey, Jake, I've got grasshoppers. Oh, don't worry. I'll be there in the morning. There comes a plane. And with malathion, he sprays everything. Everything's dead in about a half an hour. And and he says to me, now, Bobby says, uh, you can't go in that field for 24 hours. You know, uh, malathion, you know, it's, it's a poison, you know. I say, yeah, well, I know. I know. So anyway, it the grasshoppers were gone. So I called up my organic friends. I said, what do you do for grasshoppers? And they said, just calm down, calm down. He said, we can use a, a um, Locema locusta. It's, a, it's the name of the product. And it was a protozoa, which is a little smaller than the bacteria. You put that on wheat bran and you spread it around the edge of your field. And when the grasshoppers start to come in, they eat that and they get sick. And then all their friends come and eat them. It's just like politics in America today. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I'll try that. And so I did. And that's exactly what happened. The grasshoppers ate in and ate the field down to nothing for about 20 or 30 feet. And then they were gone. And at harvest time, um, there was almost no grasshoppers in the, in the rest of the field. It was a great crop. It was a drought year after all. But across the, across the coulee in my um, chemical fields, after about 10 days, the malathion 
dissipated and the next wave of grasshoppers came in and we couldn't afford to spray twice. It was a poor year anyway, and it's quite expensive to spray um, those um, chemical insecticides on. And at harvest time, I had about as many grasshoppers in the combine tank as I had grain. And I went to my dad and I said, Dad, look at here, this is the second year in a row that we've tried the organic um, methods and, the, and they've worked uh, completely. And the chemical uh, uh, has either been the same or let us down completely. I said, I'm done with chemicals. I'm just going to go cold turkey into organic 100%. And he, and he said, okay. Um, and he supported me. And I really appreciate that about him. You know, a lot of, a lot of dads and, and folks that have been farming all their life wouldn't have um, allowed such a <laughs> heresy um, to be perpetrated um, in, uh, in, the, in the neighborhood. Um, but we had just been to a food show the year before, and a couple years before, in 86, our food, first big um, organic and natural products food show in California. And thousands of people came by our booth thanking us for having um, organic grain even available. And so he understood that there was a market. And so he didn't, he felt that lowered the risk. And even though we didn't know exactly what we're doing for farming, he knew we could sell it because hundreds and hundreds of people have told him they'd buy it. And so that was our start. And um, I never looked back and uh, it hadn't always been easy, um, but we didn't make any big, big, big mistakes that sunk the whole <laughs> uh, We We started in, you know, a little slowly, a couple year transition. And, um, and we just had some good breaks and good luck the first few years. And then we just kind of learned as we went. And so that's how we got started into this. And while it's been a great trip, I had a lot of friends that helped me along the way. So that was really a big a blessing in, in, in North Dakota, and Fred Christian and Dave Vetter in Nebraska. They were my main mentors. Um, uh, and Dave Owen here in Montana, he'd been in it, and it was closest to me, the longest. And those folks really helped me along. And so I really appreciated that. And so um, now that's what I try to do to my neighbors and anyone who cares to ask. That's a, probably a long-winded answer of how we got started. <laughs> I love it. No, it's fantastic. I, um, one of the things I appreciate most about you is, um, and it's something that I, I believe I share, is the sort of idealistic vision that, um, that we can do well while doing good. And we can have businesses that actually help support people and help support the ecology of the planet and, you know, pay farmers <laughs> appropriate wages and provide food that's actually healthy for families and do it all while doing good. Um, so it's it's a rare rare idea in business these days, but it is very essential and and something that I think that uh, hopefully more people will get involved in. That's what I, I that's why I have a business is because I think it can yeah. expand the reach of helping people. Um, My philosophy is that everybody wins. That's the way I try to do business. Everybody wins because if everybody doesn't win, then you're only in business as long as you can uh, coerce or or fool or, um, you know, tell a better story that really has no substance than anybody else. But all those things uh, are not sustainable. And at some point they run out. You, you run out of money that's supporting the whole, you know, house of cards or whatever, or people find a different a source and they don't want to, if they don't want to deal with you, they don't have to and they, they, they go somewhere else. So that's not sustainable when they can. Um, so the whole win-lose thing is, um, it's not sustainable. And it's not fun to me. It's not fun either. I mean, I don't, I don't get any joy out of putting the gate, but you're trying to, you know, pull a you fast like one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, and it's, I mean, I think that that's something that's so important in terms of what you're seeing in terms of the ecology of the plants and the soil and sort of what I see clinically as a doctor of Chinese medicine in terms of the ecology of the body. So one of the things that you talk about in your book and that you mentioned before is using the synthetic nitrogen for the plants. So technically it's supposed to be, you know, the same chemical, but what have you seen in terms of how it actually works with the plants. I know you talk a lot about how you shifted your focus from feeding the plants with these chemicals to feeding the soil. Could you talk a little bit about that? I really sure. love that idea. Well, I think I think that's one of the main differences between organic systems and chemical systems. Uh, the chemical systems focuses on feeding the plant, as you mentioned, as if it didn't even grow in soil. And then with hydroponics and things like that, they aren't growing in soil. And so it's a strictly feed the plant mentality. And so the idea is to grow as much as possible uh, to feed the planet. I mean, this is, a, this is the big um, uh, war cry of the big chemical companies and the industrial egg complex in this country and in other Western developed countries where they think they can make a lot of money um, and uh, shipping cheap, cheap food everywhere around the world. And so they, they, there's been two goals, and that is <clears throat> cheap food and, the, um, and a, a great abundance. And this can be achieved with chem the, this chemical program. And, um, but, and that's what we've been doing the last 50, 60 years. And it's, and it's had a great success run. But now a lot of wheels are starting to come off that bus. And um, we have weeds that are resistant to a lot of these chemicals, like um, uh, Roundup with, uh, with glyphosate uh, as its main thing. The weeds are becoming resistant. We have... Um, pests that are becoming resistant to insecticides. Um, we have plants that are requiring more and more um, chemical fertilizers to, to reach the same levels of production that they had in the past. <clears throat> and what's happening is we're really, uh, while we're not paying any attention to it, we're killing the soil uh, more and more that supports those plants. So the plants need more and more uh, crutches. And uh, there's always crutches you can supply and they only last so long. And so my um, goal for my farm is to throw away all those crutches and just focus on the soil, the way the good Lord made it in the first place. If you look around the, um, in nature, whether it's forests or prairies or, or streams or lakes or rivers or oceans or anything, you never, never see a monoculture. You see great diversity. And that great diversity helps keep the whole thing going because all of those um, organisms that are in that system are giving and taking from that system in a way that keeps the whole thing uh, rotating and, and in cycling, I should say, and and healthy. And it was designed that way, and it's been that way for eons. And so to think that we can come and and um, uh, make an artificial monoculture and then treat it in a way that needs to be treated because it's it's artificial; it has to have artificial support. <clears throat> um, that, that's where you start to run into trouble because these artificial things at some point start to break down and you don't see it right away. Um, but, and some of it's still happening and, and people are still not recognizing or it's so subtle. They think, well, we can, it's a Band-Aid mentality. Or we can just get another Band-Aid or we can get a new pill like uh, uh, using a medicine type um, approach. Just get a new pill and, and they don't cure you. They, they help you feel better. Um, and that's the goal. So you don't die right away, but you can keep buying pills. You see that way. 
but to being sold, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that's right. And it's a great business, a multi-billion dollar business. And the chemical um, agriculture is just the same thing. So you talked about um, combining medicine and, and ecology and all that kind of stuff. It's the same thing. So the microbiome in our gut, all those bacteria that they keep us healthy and strong, because if we feed, if we feed them right, um, is no different than the microbiome, we don't really call it that, in the soil, that if we feed it right and keep it healthy and strong, it will support the plants, just as our gut supports the rest of our body, our brain, and everything else that's going on. It's a very, very close analogy. And if you have healthy soils, you're going to have healthy plants. If you have a healthy uh, gut microbiome, you're going to have a healthy body. And so that's, that's, it's, it's just follows. And one depends on the other. They're actually interrelated. And they link, are linked together when you eat because you're eating the, the thing that links them. Um, you're taking the product of one system and putting it in your body, which is the other system. And if both of those are, are in sync or doing well, everything is going to be fine. Um, in most cases, I mean, it's not 100%, nothing 100% of life, but, but a high, high 90s, I mean, it's the way it's supposed to work. And if you're not doing that, then you are, by and large, going to be um, reaping the whirlwind of the consequences. And you're going to be in that large percent that's chronically ill with something or another in this country. So I'm not sure if I answered. Did I answer your question on that? So that's where I'm, I'm focusing on feeding in the soil and making sure the soil is healthy. And they're putting good seed. That's the other thing. You know, people talk about healthy soils make healthy plants, make healthy people. But I think we need to go one step before that and talk about putting in good seed, seed that hasn't been altered and changed and producing negative effects. Even in a great system, if you don't start with good seed, you're not going to end up with the greatest food. And we can talk about more of that later if you want. But anyway, that's also an important addition to that chain that that is in the in system. There are too many rabbit holes I want to go down, Bob. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but since you just brought up seeds, <laughs> let's let's go to that one. Um, so many people, you know, have heard about GMOs and they're under the impression that this is something that's going to help increase yields and increase the amount of food that's available. Um, whereas you've done some research and you've cited some research that shows that some of the organic wheats and, you know, natural wheats that you've grown have higher nutritional values, higher mineral content. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between the genetically modified seeds and sort of these traditional seeds like Kamut, which you've brilliantly trademarked in your business model. And I, I really think that's such a cool idea, but keep going. <laughs> okay, well, um, we had um, come across an ancient wheat, which is a, a long story. I think it's chapter three in my book, Grain by Grain. You put in a, a selfless plug for our book. So anyway. Um, oh, it'll be can... linked in the in everything. I love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, rather to get into whole that, that whole story, I'll just jump to the the uh, the middle of it, where we found that people who had trouble eating modern wheat could eat this ancient grain without any trouble. <clears throat> and um, in fact, the first case that we found that that was true, the, the lady said not only could she eat it, but she felt better after she did eat it. And and she said, you know, I've got a, a sister who has lots of sensitivities with many different foods, including wheat. Um, could I have her try this? And so we sent it. So I said, sure, we'll send you a whole box full of pasta. And we sent a box of pasta to her. And after she'd eaten that for several weeks, she contacted us and she said, you know, not only could I eat it and I am feeling better, but I'm now less sensitive to other foods. So it's actually healing her body uh, against other troubles she was having. And I said, wow. When we heard that, because we had been selling this grain as 
a novelty, you know, found in King Tut's too and all that kind of stuff, which we found out wasn't true anyway. But um, sure. uh, so anyway, <laughs> when I found that out, then we started taking this really serious. And I said, this is, you know, like a gift from the Lord or something. This is to help people heal. And um, and what has happened, so so we decided to register a trademark. The Kabut trademark is a Kabut is an ancient Egyptian word for wheat. And since the ancient Egyptian language isn't in common use anymore, we're able to register that as a trademark. And, and a trademark is um, a way to make guarantees to your customers. This doesn't mean you own the grain. Um, we don't own the grain. The grain's free to anyone who wants to grow it. But if they want to use the Kumu trademark, then they have to be part of our, 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 our quality control program, which means that the grain is always organically grown. Uh, it's regenerative organic uh, grown. And in fact, we require people to be growing soil building crops a year before they plant the grain crop. It, it only grows best in Montana, Alberta, Saskatchewan, a little bit of the Western Dakotas, because it doesn't um, have any resistance to black tip that comes with rain. If you can have enough rain to grow corn, then if you try to grow this grain, it gets a disease. So we stay in the arid um, upper Great Plains, the northern Great Plains of the America, of North America, and they have good luck there. And um, so we decided to do some research. I, I wanted to do some research to see if we could figure out why this grain um, didn't give people trouble that modern wheat does. And we so we designed um, studies in Italy that was the only place we could find that was really willing to work with us. In America, they felt like there wasn't any problem with our wheat. Uh, everything's fine because, you know, it's a product of great American ingenuity and science and on and on and on. And if people were having trouble, it must be in their head. You know, they must be having a mental problem with this. And, um, of course, we know that's not true. But uh, in Italy, they took it much more serious. And they, if you can't eat pasta in Italy, they, the folks just don't run down to the corner store looking for wheat-free, gluten-free. They want to know what's the matter and how to fix it. And so we had some very interested uh, folks in the University of Bologna and uh, University um, Research uh, Medical uh, Hospital in Florence. And we set up clinical trials. It took probably 10 years worth of clinical trials, very not cheap. Um, each one was 60 to 80,000 bucks. And um, that's how we used a lot of um, the uh, money that we could have put into, well, a new boat for me, but I don't have a new boat. But I have 36 peer-reviewed journal articles that go into detail about the difference between modern wheat and ancient wheat. And the biggest difference was actually the inflammation, that modern wheat causes inflammation in small, in small levels. And this ancient grain is anti-inflammatory. And the difference was 30 or 40%. It was huge. You can't get that kind of thing with pills, with medicine even. So <clears throat> we followed that through with um, studying clinical or um, so like chronic disease, because all chronic disease is tied to infl inflammation. So we studied um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, irritable bowel syndrome, non-alcoholic non -alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, uh, fibromyalgia. Let's see what else. I think those are the main ones. And, um, and all the results were the same. We did uh, uh, double-blind crossover studies. That is, the people in the <clears throat> in these studies all have these diseases. Um, and they didn't know what they were eating. We told them not to eat any wheat, only what we gave them. We gave them flour and crackers and cookies and bread and pasta. And they could make whatever they wanted, but they couldn't eat, buy any wheat up in the store. And they would eat one, one diet or the other for six weeks. And then they had a six-week cleanup period or eight weeks, whatever, depending on the trial. And then they switched over. 
So they would eat the other diet for six or eight weeks. And then we tested beginning and end of each of those periods so we could see the effect of the, those diets. And um, it was very, very interesting. It's very consistent. Um, for the diabetes uh, folks, they, we had a lowering of blood sugar, a lowering of, of uh, insulin, insulin resistance. And in all the tests, we had lowering of cholesterol. Even with the um, people in the, in the heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease trials, they all had at least one heart attack. <clears throat> and, the, and the scientists told me later, you know, after they took my money and everything, and we, and we, designed, we kind of designed this experiment together, um, they said, we didn't think we'd see anything because all these people, because <laughs> of their heart attack, they're all on these drugs to, trying to prevent a second heart attack. And uh, cholesterol, uh, um, reducing drugs, all this stuff. And they said, we didn't think we'd see anything, but they did. So this is actually in a completely different way. We don't understand the board of action, but it was further reducing cholesterol. It was further helping their health um, and lowering um, inflammation and inflammation markers. And so the researchers were just astounded. It was so consistent. We had a hard time publishing, getting the first ones published because it was sort of against the dogma. No one had seen this before in wheat. And um, after the fourth or fifth one, then it became quite easy. And they said, oh, here's another in a series of, um, of scientific uh, studies uh, looking at modern wheat and nation wheat. And what we have come to understand is that with wheat, it's not even a GMO question because the GMOs have not been accepted um, by the customers um, in, well, especially in Asia, and that's where our biggest markets are for wheat. And so the GMO perpetrators have kind of pulled back on the GMO wheat. We don't have any GMO wheat, but we have wheat that's vastly different from what we started with this pre-World War II, which now we call those grains heirloom grains, or even going further back, the ancient wheats. And what they have done is focus on increasing yields not only on the farm, but also even in the bakery. And in the farm, they've made the grains shorter. They've made them more disease resistant and, uh, and able better to respond to higher artificial um, nitrogen applications so that everything is focused on higher and higher yields. Um, and these ancient grains do have uh, quite a bit lower yields than what we have now. So the yield thing, and we talked about that earlier, that was a goal and that's really been achieved. And the bakers wanted more yield too. They wanted to make more bread with less flour, less grain, less wheat, less flour. And they were able to do that by making, changing the gluten and making the gluten stronger so it would hold air. So the way bread rises is the yeast and um, yeast in, that they add, the fast rising yeast now that they're using predominantly, um, turn the sugar to carbon dioxide. And that gas um, is trapped in the little cells of the, of the um, dough and it causes the, the whole loaf to rise. And that's how you get... Um, uh, more of the big fluffy American white air bread that we call it. And um, so imagine if you're a baker and you got to sell air for the price of bread. You know, it's a great deal. Uh, so the more air they get put in their loaf and they're selling it by the loaf, um, the more bread they are making. And so they love this. But what no one anticipated, and, and it, so it wasn't done on purpose. It wasn't done, you know, in to try to hurt anybody. But a completely unintended consequence of this was that many people have trouble digesting this improved gluten um, and uh, improved as far as this air trapping ability, but it wasn't so easily digested. And the fast rising yeast that the bakers are using only had time to break down the sugar that they added to the bread and change that to carbon dioxide. Um, and um, it didn't have time to start digesting the uh, 
the the, the um, protein, the, the gluten, or the starch, the complex starch that's in the that's in the wheat and in the dough at that point. And if you contrast that with sourdough that takes at least overnight and sometimes a couple of days that people are depending on the, the method they're using, if you ferment with sourdough using you know bacteria and the mixture bacteria in, in yeast for say 40 hours, for example, about over 90% of your gluten is gone. It's broken down. And so you're eating stuff that's pre-digested. So it really is a big um, help to those that have trouble with um, wheat gluten or other things in the wheat. If things are broken down and pre-digested, uh, you don't have nearly trouble. So that's just a couple of things that are going on with modern wheat compared to ancient wheat. And that's what I know best. But I would be suspicious of any other seed development that has changed the nature of the seed radically and looking at only one thing like yield. Um, and what we should be looking at is nutrient density. And um, also, I mean, yield is also important. We can't have, uh, you know, we have to have a harvest, but we can also look just as seriously at nutrient density as we do yield and put those two together and not just um, sacrifice one for the other. We don't have to do that. We can work together and have something that helps everybody. Yeah, well, I feel like when, whenever we're looking at a, a one single action, you know, or one pathway, you know, and we see this a lot with like pharmaceuticals, it's like, okay, yep. so you have an antibiotic and you want to get rid of this, or you have, you want to lower your cholesterol, but we need cholesterol and we need healthy fats and we need, yeah. you know, di biodiversity in our guts. It's like, if you're looking at this one outcome, you're missing the whole array of life um, and, and sort of shortchanging the whole system. Yeah. Um, so I, I love the idea of, you know, finding a grain that's that's you know helpful for the planet, helpful for for reducing inflammation. I think what is it about six out of ten uh, Americans have a chronic health disorder, and four out of ten American adults have two, and then you know fifty percent of children now have a chronic health disorder, and that's really like one of the main reasons I'm doing this podcast is because you know fifty four percent of our kids having a chronic health disorder sets them up not only for a lifetime of potentially ill health, but a lifetime where they're then on pharmaceuticals as well, which have also other implications in terms of their long-term health, because most pharmaceuticals are only researched for short-term use. Um, That's exactly right. And then I just read an article here a few weeks ago that said 77% of young men, I think a limited young men, may have been a whole youth, from 17 to 24 or 17 to 28 that are uh, military service, going into the military service, are not passing their physical. 77% fail their physical in the military because of obesity or ill health of some kind. That's terrific. That's a horrific number. I mean, that, we are really going in the wrong direction. And that 60% you mentioned and the, and the 50, whatever it was for the kids, and the 40% with two or more chronic diseases, that's only getting worse and worse and worse. And how bad does it have to get before we maybe think we're going in the wrong direction, um, you know, for our health? And this is the basic thing. And we have a lot of debate in, in Congress about, you know, healthcare problem. It really should be called sick care. But anyway, the, the healthcare programs, it, you know what? It doesn't make any difference in the world what kind of healthcare program you end up with. If the vast majority of your people are sick, we can't afford it no matter what we have. We're going to go bust. And uh, so it's not only... Um, a terrible tragedy in terms of human health is a tragedy for the economy. At some point, we won't be able to sustain that and the whole thing would come down. Um, we just can't sustain that. 
what so what do you actually think would be the best way for people like me to support farmers and to support the mission that you're working on in terms of particularly organic and sustain you know organically sustainably grown foods you know i go to the farmers market and whatnot but are there other ways that we can support farmers well that's a really really good question i love that question and and um if you want to change the world i tell all the people who listen to me if they will if they if they want to change the world if they want to change so the world of pollutions, if they want to change the world of health uh, in the whole country, but even in your own family, and you have a very poignant example, right? Right, that you live with every day. But everybody has that, but it's in, it's, it's in less degrees and they don't notice it. And if they would, if would take it seriously, like you're taking it seriously because it's like um, critical, mm-hmm. um, they, would, they would prevent so many things coming in the future that will certainly come. Um, if you want to help your own communities, uh, be viable economically. If you want to help your farmers, be viable economically and also have a chance for a happy um, uh, family and a, a decent livelihood. One thing you can do is every time you go in the store, if you're still buying out of the store, um, buy one more, put one more thing in your basket organic than you did the time before or the month before or the year before. Just do one thing at a time, just a little increment. If everybody did a little increment, then we could push the whole thing on. Right now, in the last 35 years, we have gone from near zero organic in this country to 6% of all the production, all the food that we eat, everything that's sold in the source, 6% is organic. At the current rate of growth in the next 35 years, it'll be 100 if we keep going. And we can only keep going if people keep buying. And you don't have to buy, you don't have to go to 100%, but just go and increment, just just a little improvement. If everybody did a little, it would be huge. And that's what I encourage that everybody can do that. And it's certainly within everybody's budget. I mean, look for sales. Buy the organic stuff when it's on sale if you want, or, or, or in season. Or buy the, you know, as I said before, buy the potatoes or the or the, or the raw grain or the raw vegetables that you prepare yourself. Um, when you get those home, they're cheaper. They're much cheaper than the canned stuff that's even not organic. And so you can be saving yourself um, money doing that actually, um, and, and you're making a big difference to so many aspects of the troubles that we have. I mean, climate. We haven't even talked about climate change, but that's another thing being um, <laughs> certainly um, ex- accelerated by modern chemical industrial farming. The the, the uh, making of chemical nitrogen is a huge addition to the greenhouse gases, and uh, and then the way we're farming and tilling the ground so much that. We're losing uh, organic matter. Organic, uh, particularly regenerative organics, reverses all of that. Not only do we stop using organic um, nitrogen fertilizer, which is adding to the problem, but we are adding more um, organic matter back to soil by the sequestration of carbon, which is being part of the solution to the problem. So we're, we're working at both ends of it. We're, we're reducing the creation of it, and we're working on the solution of the of the problem that exists today. Um, you can't say that with too many systems. Um, this you can say, and, it's, and, and climate change is not. It's just one of many. That, you know, pollution problem is another. That we got a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the size of New Jersey, because of chemical fertilizers. How big does it have to get before we think we might have a problem and maybe going the wrong direction? How many wells in Iowa have to be contaminated with nitrates so that kids can't even drink out of them before we think that maybe we're going in the wrong direction? And this is what I keep harping on. And, and I just plead with people to help us out and that everybody can help us out by buying organic in the grocery store. 
because that naturally drives us. If you're going to go up, if you think you're going to go up against Monsanto, or you have a, or well, Bear now, you better have a pretty big checkbook because they have billions and billions and billions of dollars that they're making off of all these things. Now on both sides, the chemical, uh, industrial things and ag and, and the pharmaceutical. And if you think they want to see anything changed in Congress, well, guess what? They like it just the way it is. But they cannot have control over what you do in the grocery store. They have no control over that. They have great control over Washington, D.C. And what we can do there is limited. But what we can do in the grocery store is out of their control. And even though it's an incremental thing, it's not just a, a, a sensation of uh, the production of glyphosate. But if you don't buy anything that's not organic, that means that all that has not had glyphosate sprayed on it. And, and eventually that will will cause glyphosate to not be profitable for them anymore. And as soon as it's not profitable, they will stop making it. That's, there's no question about that. They'll jump onto something regenerative organic that they can make and sell and, and claim it was their idea in the first place. Because <laughs> that's how they do. <laughs> but the quicker we can reach that day, the better it's going to be for everybody. You know, I'm not saying, you know, I don't wish, you know, uh, everybody to lose money that's a Monsanto or a, a Bayer stockholder right now. But tell your boss to go in a different direction and you'll, you'll avoid the, um, you know, imagine if he could avoid all the glyphosate lawsuits now by not making glyphosate anymore or anything like it. I mean, just don't substitute one bad thing for another bad thing. Go in a different direction. Be part of the, be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And it's a lot more fun. Uh, you can make money at that. And it's, a, and it's very satisfying, you know, to, to your own self and your family. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to imagine how some of these people can sleep at night, um, especially, you know, as, as more and more information comes out about how detrimental glyphosate and yeah. a lot of these other chemicals are to our health and what they're doing to the health of our societies. It's, you know, I... I yeah, I can't even tell a white lie. I don't, I don't really know how they can uh, how they can go about that. But um, one thing that's you know that we started talking about before is uh, is the fact that glyphosate is now in the rain. You were starting to tell me before we we hopped, we started recording about how you're doing some experiments <clears throat> on trying to to figure out where that's coming into the farm and how that's working. I mean, I think everybody listening should really think about the fact that we're using so much of this chemical that it's it's literally now in the rain so it's it's very hard to avoid it at all even if you're buying organic although organic is the way to go because it's still significantly less and and still tested and and grown in in ways that are respectful so that we're not getting more glyphosate pumped into the environment um yeah. But I'd love to hear more about the experiments that you're doing. I love that you have such an experimenter's mind and scientific mind when it comes to all of these things. It's so fun to hear about. Well, we started running into trouble in Italy when they started testing glyphosate at, at a level of 10 parts per billion. I mean, this 10 parts per billion is just a, you know, it's a, a nab on a fly. It's, it's, it's almost nothing. But still, it's, it became measurable. We were always testing our... Um, we spend about a half a million dollars a year on testing. Uh, we should send that bill to Monsanto and the guys that are polluting us, but we're spending it. We're, we're having to pay for it. And then the customer has to pay for it that's buying the products. But anyway, uh, we can guarantee that we were free from all those at, at the limits we were testing. Um, we never saw one glyphosate contamination exceeding 50 parts per billion. But when we started getting um, tested at 10, then we saw some. 
And so we we hired a, an, an independent research group from Germany to come over to um, Canada and well, Montana, Alberta, Saskatchewan, our area of production, and figure out where was the contamination is coming from because it was so low. We, well, we knew none of our farmers were spraying at night or anything else, and uh, it was so so low that um, the um, uh, it had to be some kind of um, a uh, contamination to the neighborhood or something. And mm-hmm. so they came over and they spent all summer looking at everything, taking all kinds of tests. <clears throat> and what they concluded that most of the contamination was not from drift uh, because there's not much drift with glyphosate, but it was coming in the rain. And we were astounded by that. We never even imagined that. And so I started doing experiments on farm to see, to say that more because our farm was one that was affected. <clears throat> so in America, you can have a, a glyphosate uh, and any chemical can be sold as organic. It's 5% of the EPA tolerance levels. So we don't live in a, we live in a contaminated world now. So even if your organic is a systems promise, it's not a promise of zero, uh, of zero con- uh, contamination, but we, we promise we don't use it to grow your food. Um, and so the levels of contamination are normally a thousand times less if there are any at all. And sometimes there, there are at least none detected in some, some chemicals, but others, if there are any at all, they're normally a thousand times Hundred to a thousand times less than than what uh, the um, chemical farmers are having in their food. Well, and you their- also know that the farmers that are farming the food are not adding more chemicals to the environment to just continue the cycle. Well, that's the other thing. <laughs> you know, because so you, yeah, because what goes on the plant yeah. is a very small percent of what is sprayed on the field. Mm-hmm. So the environmental contamination is way more than the food contamination, actually. And so what we started doing on our farm is measuring glyphosate in the rain. Um, we started measuring it on our farm and then, and then we found it in the rain over the course of a year, um, low amounts, very low amounts, but we, we saw it in not every rainstorm, but, uh, most of them during the summer we did see. And then we, we, um, the next year we compared that with a, a friend of mine who lives about 30 miles away and his, his rates were four or five times higher than mine. And so then I thought, well, that can't be. If it's it's coming from far away in a rain cloud, it should all be the same. The same storm should produce the same contamination, but it wasn't. So now I'm thinking, and this now we're going to be testing this hypothesis this year, that perhaps it's being blown up in the dust that precedes a lot of these big thunderstorms. It's usually a big wind in front of them, um, blowing the dust up out of the fields uh, nearby, and then the rain is raining it, that dust back down on the ground. And that's the way we're going to look at this year. We're going to be checking some of the pasture that's surrounded by grass for 10 miles and wouldn't have any, I would say, sprayed in that nearby. With my farm, it's half um, surrounded by chemical farms and the other half is by mountains and, and the river breaks. But And then comparing that with the farm that's completely surrounded for, say, 10 miles in every direction with chemical farms. So that's where we are in our experiments. But the fact that it's being used so... Highly, most farms, chemical farms are spraying it four or five times during the fallow year, and, and, and sometimes at least once and sometimes twice normally during the growing year, right before they grow the crop and right after they finish harvesting it, unless they're growing GMO crops. There's not many GMO crops in our area. Um, but then they spray it four or five times during their, or several times during the growing season. So it's, um, it's a chemical, it's the most widely used um, chemical in the whole world now. 
and it's everywhere. It's contaminating everything. And there, and it was started to be safe in the you know, benign. Why do they spray it during the failure just uh, to keep all to keep the... the weeds from growing to kill all the weeds? So the weeds won't be taking the moisture out of the ground. And do you know what the half life of glyphosate is? Like, how long does it take for this to break down? Does it ever break down? Do <laughs> Well, that well, Monsanto, who introduced it before Bear bought them, said, don't worry, it breaks down almost immediately in the presence of sunlight, um, and uh, and that it, it combines with soil. It's a chelating agent, so it, it, it very tightly binds with any minerals in the soil. <laughs> so well, that's why they say it doesn't go anywhere, um, and unless it's going on the back, uh, riding on the back of a soil product, particle. That's what we're going to be testing this year. But the fact that they said it breaks down sunlight isn't true. Um, so we don't really know what the half-life is because it's way longer than what they claim, uh, which is almost nothing. Um, so they haven't told the truth about anything regarding this, hardly, and that's why they're in lawsuits now because they haven't told the truth. And they've known way more than they've told, and you've referenced some of the people writing books about that. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a, the dark side of business that uh, we have to have to deal with in some way. But it's hard, as I told you before, because of the millions of dollars that's being made with this. It's the most popular chemical, and it's the most money, biggest money maker they have, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was in Home Depot the other day, and it was like right up right up front. And I was like, oh, there it is. Lovely. Yeah, Even older Colorado, you've got a big old shelf of it here. Um, yeah, it's... It's pretty terrifying how pervasive it is. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's just overwhelming uh, to think about the Goliath on the other side. Uh, that, yeah. that so remember what happened to Goliath. So just remember yeah. how it <laughs> ended. <laughs> well, this I is, mean, it was scary. It was a scary story. But remember the ending. And, and, and that's what we have hope. We can have hope for, really. That's what we can have hope for. They'll have the same ending for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's why I love talking with people like you who are just so hopeful about, you know, and about the reality that if we all take individual accountability and take these imperfect steps, I always say something's better than nothing. You know, yeah. don't look at health or, or life as like a, you know, you're going to take a 90 degree turn, like take yeah. incremental steps in the direction of your dreams, you know, which my dream is organic food, eat organic food, people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> take herbs, don't take farms. Um, but it's yeah. like, you know, like if, if we can, you know, as you said, add one more organic vegetable or fruit or whatever to your cart, you know, if we can all just keep doing that and keep moving in that direction, you know, we actually have a hope of making, you know, some serious change in this world and helping things shift yeah. in the direction that's going to be healthier and happier for all of us. Um, it is wild, though. Um, I know that you have sort of stepped away from farming and moved that into the hands of some of your mentees. What are you working on these days? <laughs> well, I've um, after 40 years, I thought I had my turn. And I thought it should be the next generation. Uh, it's time to get a turn to of farming. So that's what I've done. I rented out my farm five years ago. Five years ago, I started a three-year retirement program. And it took me five years to complete it. But I have now sold all my businesses that I had started in conjunction with the farm. I've turned the Kamu project over to my sister's son, my nephew, and so he's doing that. And so now I'm focusing on some fun things like a subterranean greenhouse where I can grow oranges and lemons and grapefruit in Montana. And they have a, a greenhouse um, six feet below the surface of the ground. I, I bought a kit from 
the greenhouse in the snow. If you want to go online and look at it in Nebraska, and it's quite fun. I started, I mean, just in my first year, so I don't really know how it's going to work in every aspect. But we went through five days of minus 20 degrees below zero as a high and uh, minus 30 at night, uh, right before Christmas. And my greenhouse didn't freeze. And the only heat source is uh, geothermal air that's coming in from fans that are blowing through long tubes 10 feet under the ground, bringing in 50 degree air. And that's what's keeping it from freezing and, and it helps reduce the heat in the in the summertime too. So that's uh, that's part of my fun thing. And then I wanna take oh, seven or 800 acres out of the middle of my farm and create a regenerative organic um, research, education and health institute where we can uh, show farmers how they can convert to regenerative organic and be safe about it and know what to do and answer answer some of their questions. And and those that are in it have been in it for a while, make sure they're able to stay in it by answering some of their challenges or helping them figure out their challenges, like some perennial weeds that are bad. And then uh, education part of trying to um, help farmers do that, but also help help uh, non-farmers uh, plant and grow gardens successfully and, and harvest them and have a have a uh, like to have a culinary um, portion where we'd have chefs to teach, have a teaching kitchen to teach people how, how what to do with a turnip out of their garden or a, or a zucchini or stuff that a lot of people don't even know what to do with it, and so they don't buy it. But if they knew what to do with it, it's it's not only fun but economically and then very much higher in nutrition. And then we'd like to have a, a healthcare provider on staff that focuses particularly in chronic disease and. Um, prescribes not pills from the pharmacy, but food from the farm as a, an answer to that. And some of the things that, too, that you were talking about as far as herbal remedies. And so that we'd have the whole picture. We'd have the whole picture from the beginning of the of planting the seed to the end of how it can help your health, even if you don't have good health, at the end, all with the same focus in mind, and that's the regenerative organic um, program. That's that's my long term. For the rest of my life, I'll be working on that. <laughs> I love that. No, it's it's so essential. I mean, you know, I know that a lot of farmers have had a difficult time making that conversion successfully. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people really just do not know how how to cook vegetables and fruits. Just a quick tip. I mean, I cook everything in ghee for the most part, but like some oil, some ghee, some sea salt, saute it, yeah. <laughs> throw some yeah. garlic in there, put it in a pan, roast it. It's going to be delicious. It's not... You know, people are often scared of salt and fats and, you know, those make vegetables delicious. Um, It's not cooking is very, very easy once you get the fundamentals. Um, So I I love that you're going to work on that. And I'd love to have you back um, so we can nerd out on that and how we can help people. No, that'd be good. Because I also want to add to that preservation. So at harvest time, you can preserve those foods with fermentation, with making uh, sauerkraut, for example, or pickling or drying or canning or um, any of those freezing, any of those kinds of things that you could then eat out of your garden the whole year round. Yeah. Or a yeah. root cellar. We have a root cellar that we can store our potatoes and we can eat potatoes year round because it's what we store will last till July when the new potatoes start. And we can eat fresh potatoes out of the garden until October when the harvest is and, and then eat out of the uh, root cellar for the rest of the year. And we can do that also with carrots and um, and things like uh, turnips. Also root, root, root crops, we can do that. And there's almost no cost to a root cellar. I mean, if you have, maybe you have a community root cellar. I don't know, because you have to have a little space, big one, and have one. But um, we could do that so cheaply. And uh, I think the other thing, the key to success is growing our food closer to home and mm-hmm. cutting down on these food miles. 
And then you're supporting your rural communities because you're keeping the money right in the community from the very time you pay the farmer then to the processor, to the store. Everything could be within 100 miles or 50 even in some areas. And uh, that to me is uh, back to the future. Um, but because we had that in the beginning in the, in the homestead days, everybody grew a lot of their own food and they didn't bring in stuff. We could still have a banana once in a while from uh, Central America as a treat. I don't have a problem with that. But when we bring in staples, we're bringing in now, we had our 60% of our safflower or sunflowers were grown in Ukraine. Well, that really turned out good, huh? Um, because <laughs> what's happening there. And But this is just an example. We shouldn't uh, grow depend on other countries because we can get it cheaper than what we can grow in our own backyard and support our own people. Um, this is a, a backwards idea of how we should spend our money. So anyway, I was going to say, I put in another one last plug. If you got any of your listeners that really have a tax problem and looking for something to donate to, um, I would love to visit with them about our research institute because it doesn't research doesn't make money, it costs money. But in the end, it provides great information that can help a lot of people. And that's the goal. Well, I will nerd out with you about some ways to help you guys get some money because I think, I think we can play with some things. Um, but um, but yeah, it is. I you know, if you're listening and you can put your money where your mouth is, you know, Bob is the real deal. He's been doing this for quite a long time, and you know, truly one of my heroes. I I could not, uh, I could not respect you more and the work that you're doing and the advocacy that you're doing. I think it's so exciting and it's so essential. And um, again, I'm super grateful for your time. And I look forward to nerding out with you some more very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe oh, book the farm and yeah. harass you up there. <laughs> That'd be fine. Come up sometime and see us. I really appreciate what you're doing because I can sit here in Big Sandy, Montana with a population of 600 and, and say all I want. And we got the whole country that needs to hear this message. And a lot of people are saying it in a lot of different places, but so often they're isolated. And so many people don't have any clue in the world why they should even support this organic stuff or even what it is. And yet it is the answer to so many problems that beset us. And people like you can help make the connection between what some people are doing to solve the problem and the, and the rest of the people that could actually be part of the solution and just their buying uh, habits could do so much. If they understood the potential they have in their pocketbook, um, that's that's what we need to explain to them. How much good could be done with so little, um, and just constantly at a, a little at a time. So thank you oh, so cool. much for what you're doing. Yeah, little by little. No, it's uh, it's it is it is so true. We just need to take step by step. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. I'm gonna stop recording. Thank you for listening to the Radical Remedy Podcast. The Radical Remedy Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-slash-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.